I'm Gray Almeida. Welcome to the Gray Area. Just a heads up, the discussion you're going to be listening to might actually bring you hope about climate change. Today I have in the studio with me Gopal Reddy, who is an old friend of mine who I met 11 years ago when I moved to Boston. Hi, Gopal. Hi, Gray. It's a pleasure to see you. It's nice to see you. I reached out to Gopal a couple weeks ago because he launched a hedge fund about two years ago, and just recently it wound down. And I wanted to hear a little bit about his experience and and what he learned along the way. And the discussion suddenly started taking a direction I wasn't expecting at all, which was about climate change. And that's a topic that I'm very interested in learning more about because it's such a touchy issue. It's almost become as complicated to talk about with people as politics or religion. Yes. So... As the discussion started taking that path and and learning more about it, thanks to Gopal, who in his 18 years now working in finance, if there's one thing about Gopal that I'm confident about is that he understands information. Because I I can't imagine somebody who's been successful in finance, who launched a hedge fund, uh, isn't aware of what's going on in the world today. If anything, that is what you are extremely skilled at, is having an understanding of opportunity, risk, what's going on in the world. Um, so I, I really feel like you are somebody that is credible. And if I'm going to learn something from anybody, it's going to be from you. And I can trust the information that you're bringing to this discussion. Right? <laughs> that, that's, that's a pretty high standard you're setting there. I'll, I'll try to meet it. <laughs> so uh, would you like to tell us, first of all, a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. So, yeah. So as Gray mentioned, I have an 18-year background in finance, graduated from Stanford in 2001 and joined Fidelity Investments, a mutual fund group. I uh, was there until 2015 and then launched uh, a hedge fund uh, focused on long-short equity called Chakra Capital Partners. That was launched in July of 2017 and, uh, as Gray mentioned, was wound down a, a couple months back. You know, I spend a lot of time examining big, long-cycle trends, whether it's demographics, whether it's economic trends, political trends. And one, one factor that is become increasingly clear, maybe the dominant issue of our of our generation, I, I, I think certainly for the next 20 to 30 years, is the issue of global warming or climate change. Um, I think it's, you know, from my perspective, it's an issue that hits every facet of human life, whether it's political, economic, social. Um, and I think it's a big issue, and I think it's a scary issue because we see the, you know, the, the statistics. I think there's a sense of powerlessness among most people about, you know, what can they do or not do. And the more research I did on the topic, a couple of things became very clear to me. Number one, it's a big problem. Number two, it's going to be hard to address. Number three, there are no technological reasons why we can't get to work on it in a meaningful way within a reasonable period of time. And so for me, there's this sense of frustration in the, in the fact that it's a big issue. It's an issue that's going to impact our children, definitely, and our grandchildren, absolutely. How is it going to affect them? So there's there's a couple of aspects of it. So so first of all, I think when we, we talk about global warming or climate change, we, we think immediately about rising sea levels. And I think that's, you know, frankly, my, my perception of it, you know, even a couple of years ago was just that, oh, well, you know, as long as I live more than 100 feet above sea level, I'm fine and it's not my problem and it's somebody else's issue. And I think there's a lot of people who probably think of it that way. And, you know, we're all trying to get through our life day to day and you know, there's a limit to how many things you can worry about. The big challenge with climate change is that it's not just about rising sea levels. It's about 
destabilizing food supply. It's about potentially destabilizing our border security. You know, there's an in- interesting study that was put out just recently by uh, the U.S. Department of Defense, and they're estimating that 60% of their military installations could be at risk of flooding within 20 years. That is crazy. Right. So this is a serious issue, and we're not, you know, this is the Department of Defense doing long-range planning, and they're saying that 60% of their facilities are at risk of being flooded over the next 20 years. You know, the, the point here is that, you know, you, you have an organization like the Department of Defense, which I think we could say is relatively apolitical. And from their long-range planning estimation, they're saying that they've got, they've got a big issue that they've got to work through. So to me, one of the tragedies is that climate change has become this big partisan issue. But the reality is that it affects all of us and it will affect all of us over the course of time. And so what are you seeing in the financial industry? How are people talking about climate change? You know, first of all, within the finance industry, I think that there's an aspect of acceptance of negative news that is maybe unique to the finance industry versus other industries. And I say that in the sense that finance is all about trying to look forward into the future and figure out where the opportunities are, where the risks are. And because of that background and the fact that most people in finance have to be rational about what they're doing and how they're approaching the world, there's a willingness to accept the fact that negative information and to process it and to potentially figure out what, what ways there are to address it or to take advantage of it. And from that standpoint, I, I suspect that people will underestimate how much interest and potential support for this issue there is within the finance community. And just to give you one example, the most high-profile individual is Tom Steyer, who's running for president now, uh, is, uh, you know, had a very successful career running his own hedge fund and has had environmental issues at the top of his agenda for a very, very long time. But there's many, many other people out there within the finance field who have an interest, who are deeply passionate about it. And they've not yet put major money behind this issue. But my, my sense and reading of it is that they're ready to, as soon as the frameworks and political will to do it are, are there. And so, so again, you know, for me, having gone through this process of, of studying the issue in more depth in the last year, there's frustration because it's a big issue. and I think it's going to impact all of us. And I don't think we're moving fast enough on it. But there's also hope in the sense that there are clear technology solutions that that can be applied within 20 to 30 years to get us to where I think the world needs to go. And there's a lot of money and a lot of political support that's building behind it. It's just a question of of getting it over the hump. So you're talking about how the finance industry is already starting to think about it, working on it. Money's getting put towards it. If, If you take away the whole fact that, okay, this is something that we have to do as human beings on Earth in order to be able to live a comfortable life and survive... You're still saying that financial uh, professionals are starting to see opportunity to make money potentially in in this sector. Yeah, and I'd, I'd say even from a regulatory standpoint, there's been some interesting developments in the sense that companies are now being pushed to disclose their potential climate liabilities in their annual reports. Um, and the Federal Reserve now is even starting to push the financial system, the banking system, to start implementing risk parameters around climate change, the potential risks that may have to the you know to those business models over time. So I think you know the the, the big plumbing of the financial industry is is making progress in terms of of starting to address this as a long term long term concern. So. I also have another question as just the regular person in America trying to read the news and get informed. Sometimes I wonder why it is that these big institutions who have a lot of money behind them don't speak up more, don't put their foot down saying it is wrong the way that things are getting communicated. This is a problem. These are solutions. Just the articles that you sent me 
suddenly seemed to have so many solutions in there that I had never heard about before. Why is it not getting out to the mainstream media? One of the big problems is that it's an unpleasant topic and no one really wants to think about it. But it seems so unpleasant already when I'm on the news. I can barely open up my browser. I've had to actually stop getting on Facebook because I got annoyed with that. So then right. I started kind of finding myself waking up in the morning, getting on CNN, had to stop that because I was getting too depressed. We always think, well, no, the information isn't getting out there because nobody wants to read unpleasant information. I'm still getting extremely unpleasant information in my browser every single right. morning. Yet it's always the unpleasant information to tell me how everybody's lying. Quotes about how everybody's just being so unkind. So why aren't we having more news of here are the solutions? If I, if I had to pick a, the, the single biggest reason is that the solutions are hard to implement and they require changes and change is hard. OK, that's true. Currently, we're talking about impeaching the president of the United States. And I'm not going to go down the political path. We've already agreed on that. That's not what the path that we want to take in today's podcast. But that is an extremely difficult process to make happen if it ever happens. So we're not afraid of talking about that. Is that what the news outlets think, that nobody wants to read of the solution because it's too difficult to implement? I think the challenge for mass media in climate change is that it, it takes more than a two-minute soundbite to get the information across. And uh, it's a complicated issue, and the solutions will take some work. And it's hard to convey that in a, in a short, concise bite that the average person can consume and understand mm -hmm. quickly. You know, when we think back to some of the other environmental challenges that we faced in the past, so for example, the hole in the ozone, which is a big issue in the 1980s, within a fairly short period of time, international protocols were agreed upon. We phased out the, the damaging refrigerant gases. And fortunately, the hole in the ozone started to close naturally over time as you reduce those emissions. For me, the big part of that solution is that for consumers, they didn't really have to think about it. So the next time they bought an air conditioner, it already had the appropriate new updated refrigerant in it. The same as the hairsprays. I remember always hearing, right. stop using hairspray. It's right. bad for the ozone layer. Right. So you as a consumer did not have to go into the store and say, oh, this is the ozone bad hair. I mean, I love my, <laughs> I love my hair with this stuff, but it's destroying the ozone. I don't know. Maybe I'll buy. Maybe I won't. No, every, every hairspray became ozone friendly. To me, the, the big thing to, to address global warming is that you have to make it very easy for, for the average person to join the system and to, and to, to make and a difference. Solution. Right. And I think, you know, when you look at it from a high level standpoint, as, as, as an individual, either you or I, there's actually very little that we can do in our day to day lives to really reduce greenhouse gas emissions, right? So we can drive less, we can fly less, but. Ultimately, if you've got to see your grandparents or you've got to see your, your parents, we, you know, the reality is that we live in a world where we require the use of fossil fuels to get from point A to point B for a variety of reasons. And it's very, very hard to move away from that unless we as a society, we as a political and economic system decide that we're going to make it easy to do that. I think that's, that's where the, the next, that's where the big challenge in this lies. That's the message that I would really want to stress is that there's no technological reason we can't stop climate change. It's really about political and economic decisions at this point. Probably the single scariest aspect of, of climate change is the potential for what are called feedback loops, which is that as the globe warms, some of the things that keep the temperature cool on the earth get reduced even further. So, for example, you have ice at the polar caps, right, the Arctic and, and the Antarctic. That ice, as long as it's, it's in fully intact, will reflect a lot of sunlight. The sun hits the ice, it bounces off, and the heat is not trapped within the atmosphere. Now, the problem is, as the ice, ice caps melt, you have less and less of what's called that albedo effect. So as the, warm, as the planet warms, the ice caps melt, 
less sun is reflected, which warms the planet more, which increases temperatures at the poles, which melts the ice further. And you can have those kind of, of uh, feedback loops happening both in uh, forest systems and, uh, and, on, and in other ecological systems. So, for example, you know, you have forests, which are naturally very, very big carbon sinks in a, in a place where carbon can be deposited. However, if the temperature rises over time, those forests start to dry out and there is a fire of some kind that gets started, the potential for that trapped carbon dioxide to all of a sudden come back into the atmosphere is very, very meaningful. And that's true, you know, when you look back historically, there's, uh, you know, significant peat fires in Indonesia and then in the mid in the mid to late 1990s that that one country alone made a massive contribution to carbon dioxide emissions during that year. So it's that's that's one of the, the biggest to me, one of the, one of the failures of both the scientific and media community in, in communicating the severity of the issue is I don't think that they've really discussed appropriately just how severe those the, the risks of feedback loops to the negative are. Climate change refugees. Let's talk about that. Would you say so Guatemala, which yeah. has a huge problem, would you say that then they're yeah. going into Mexico and keep on coming up to the U.S. borders? Yeah. And, and, and it's always hard to come up with any single one reason why you see changes to migration patterns and why people want to come either either leave a country or come to another country. But, you know, one thing that's very clear is, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to our southern border, you know, along Mexico and migrants coming from Central and uh, South America moving moving to the north. Uh, you know, you mentioned Guatemala. Guatemala's had a very difficult time with uh, a number of, of either weak or failed harvests in a row. And you have a lot of farmers who are basically down to their last bag of seed corn that they can, you know, have to choose whether they're going to eat it or try to hope that they can plant for the next season. And a lot of these people are being driven by desperation to just move north. And I think that's one fortunate thing of living in Massachusetts and living fairly far north is that we're reasonably insulated from direct negative impacts of it, of climate change. However, there is a broader issue for the for the U.S. And if, you know, you mentioned immigration as an issue, but it's not just immigration. You know, you're already starting to see signs, uh, you know, for example, in the Florida Keys where beach erosion has come to the point where people have to move out. They're not able to get insurance for their house anymore or their house was ruined in a, a hurricane or a flood and mm -hmm. they don't have the money to rebuild. And so they've got to migrate north. And so it's not just you know, it's not just an issue of, of immigrants coming to this country. We're also likely going to have to face immigration with, you know, migration patterns within our country, even within our citizens having to move out of higher risk areas. And given given current trend, which I'm hopeful that we won't continue on, but given current trend, it actually becomes very, very difficult to just live day to day in the south, southern, southern half of the United States within 30 to 40 years. Yeah, because of the temperatures. Yeah, just day to day. Just think about you know, how are you going to build a house? How, how is a construction crew going to complete a house when they're trying to do it in 100-degree weather? In one of the presentations that you sent me, something that I thought was really interesting was the magic number is 60 degrees. Right. And we always talk about 32 degrees or 98.6 degrees. We never actually talk about 60 degrees Celsius. Oh, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, oh. Mm, sorry. <laughs> the European in me. <laughs> no, exactly. We do not want it to be 60 degrees oh. Celsius. <laughs> 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I thought it was really interesting where they talk about how that is where society, we human beings, function at our best. Probably right. where crops grow at their best. Right. But just one point that I really thought was interesting where you're talking about Florida and how we're already seeing it with the erosion of, uh, of the beaches is 
imagine if there was a border. You know, the United States is huge. Right. You compare it to Switzerland, tiny little country, okay? Then there's borders all around it. Imagine if Florida was its own little country with a border. And right. some, you know, I, I'm just only talking this way for maybe in case anybody's listening and doesn't entirely, can't entirely imagine themselves in a situation where they're suddenly, they have to go across a border to, to, to live their life because they can't stay where they are. Right. Would people in the United States think differently if they imagine people living in Florida? A lot of us probably have grandparents out there, or I have aunts and uncles, cousins out there. If they had to move because they can't live there anymore because it's inhabitable, but then the other people on the other side of that border are saying, no, you may not come in. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, yeah, it's a big problem. We're not necessarily seeing that as Americans yet. Right. All we're seeing is the people who are not. American citizens, but we are human beings looking at human beings who no longer can stay at a certain place. Right. And and they have to move and we have to come up with solutions because that's going to soon become our turn even within the United States. Right. Right. And, and I, would, I would say one of the one of the major tragedies of, of climate change and global warming is that the the most the, you know the populations that are impacted the most tend to be the ones that are around the equatorial band. So the closer you are to the equator, the, you know, the more likely it is that your life is going to be disrupted in potentially a meaningful way. By and large, those countries and those individuals have not contributed much to global warming. So that's, you know, one of the, again, the tragedy is that the people who are most impacted are the ones who've contributed the least to the problem. The reality is that we can avoid a lot of those things if we just move quickly. Uh, and again, from a technology standpoint, there's there's really no reason that we can't move quickly. It's just a que- question of political will. And I, the what I would stress is that you know, when we're talking about potentially having to resettle, you know, maybe millions of potential immigrants and maybe dealing with internal within the, you know, within the borders of the United States, U.S. citizens having to migrate, you know, from from potentially inhospitable locations further north. You're talking about devastating economic consequences of that. And and the upshot is that it's actually cheaper just to address global warming than it is to try to think about, oh, in 30 years, we're going to adjust by doing X, Y, or Z. That's to me, I don't, I don't think there's any reason that we have to get down there. You know, we're, we're talking about a problem that's going to be, you know, the, the solutions and impacts are measured in decades. And the, you know, the, the election cycle is every two years if you're in the House of Representatives and every four years for the presidency and every six years for a senator. So they're not, by and large, a political system is not designed to deal with something that's measured in decades. It's designed I, to deal with things on... Crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's been true, you know, whether we talk about Social Security, Medicare... You know, we we tend to look for band-aid solutions, but you know the the issue in global warming is that a band-aid solution is not going to work. You actually have to have real coordinated policy in order to to make a difference. And until it, it's raised as a as a bigger issue for for the average politician, it's just there's not going to be a lot done. And I would say that 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 is dis- the discouraging aspect of it. The the encouraging aspect is once they decide that it is an important issue, my sense of both the technological landscape and also in the in the financial financial side and also within the broader U.S. population, I think there's a willingness to to start doing real work on this issue. It's just a question of of again getting over the hump. So let's talk about the real work. Let's put ourselves forward because at some point everybody's going to have to agree we got to do something about this. Right. So let's fast forward a little bit. Here we are. We have the day where the world is willing to actually work on it. Right. But but like really work on it on a global scale. What are we doing? Yeah, so one of the one of the points I would I would emphasize is that it's not about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not, you know, for example, you know, you and I if we reduce our car usage by 50%, that's great. That that makes a contribution to reducing emissions, but 
the reality is, is that as long as you are emitting any additional CO2 into the atmosphere, you're raising atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. And if the atmospheric carbon dioxide levels continue to rise at any level, it continues to trap more and more heat within the atmosphere. So when we talk about you know, stabilizing, stabilizing climate levels or climate change, what you have to do is go, you have to, it's not enough to reduce your carbon dioxide emissions. You have to go to what's called net zero, which is that in aggregate, humans are putting into the air no more carbon dioxide than they are putting back into the planet. Now, from a technological standpoint, when you break down the sources and, and uh, uses of carbon dioxide, you know, obviously we think about driving our cars, and that's a major contributor, but there's also big contributions from electricity generation, from agriculture, from shipping, from air travel, from day-to-day living. And so, you know, the sources are, are coming from everywhere. What I think is most positive from a technology standpoint is that when you look at an area like electricity production, in most parts of the world now, the cheapest way to add electricity capacity is to put up wind turbines. It's cheaper to put up a wind turbine in most countries than it is to build a coal plant or a natural gas plant. Costs of solar installations are continuing to fall. And so the, the cost of finding ways to produce energy without carbon dioxide emission continues to fall. And with additional financial incentives and political incentives, I believe that that trend can continue. And so over time, our ability to address the issue gets better and better and better. And then, you know, when we talk about are there ways to actually get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and surprisingly, yes, there are, there are some very, very effective ways. So, for example, there are some very basic steps that most farmers can take to increase the carbon dioxide content of their soil, um, whether it's doing uh, cover cropping or just making some very basic changes. And the challenge for a farmer to do that is that it might disrupt their harvest for a year or two. And on the other side of it, they actually end up with much richer soil that produces more than, than it, it did previously. And they've also sequestered a lot of carbon dioxide. So there's, there's a very clean and elegant way to, for any farmer in the world to basically start sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. But it's What is hard. the process again? You say carbon cropping. What is that? Uh, cover cropping. Cover cropping? Is, yeah. So there, you just have to make some changes, the order of which you, you run plantings. And then you, you, there, there are techniques that can be used to basically just enhance the carbon dioxide levels within the soil. Okay. Do you know what farmers would need to do in order to be able to learn about it? Yeah, some of that. Well, yeah, I can I can send you some information on that. There's, but but the big challenge is that it takes you know you have to you as a farmer would have to disrupt your normal course of operations maybe for one year, two years, three years to get the full benefit. And can farmers you think afford that? Yeah, and I think there's there's actually some um, some really interesting work that's being done. There's actually a local Boston company. Uh, the name escapes me at this moment. I will uh, I'll get back to you on it. But they they're working on something called the Terraton Initiative, and they're they what they've set up is a system where companies would pay for carbon credit offsets. So basically, you know, I'm Procter and Gamble, and I want to you know offset the cost of my Gillette razors going into into the market the uh, you know the carbon dioxide emissions that are that are created from from doing that and that company is providing a mechanism where Procter and Gamble could buy that carbon credit from a farmer that farmer in turn would would use that money to help increase the carbon dioxide content of their soil and so Procter and Gamble would get their carbon dioxide offset they don't have to create it directly it's a farmer that's doing it okay so right. I just want to make sure in case anybody's listening and doesn't entirely understand what this carbon trading means or right right it's just the the, the Gillette company in order to make their razors they're obviously generating carbon dioxide just by the manufacturer that's creating it right and then transporting for example the boxes of the razors to the different stores right yeah. supply chain is creating the carbon dioxide correct right. 
So they're able to calculate how much carbon dioxide was released, let's say, per shipment. Right. And then they would go and um, through a broker, <laughs> right? Right. Through a car. So this is the company that you're talking about in Boston. Right. Um, who will get the name, and I'll I'll add it somehow, or you can Google it now. Uh-huh. Okay. So then they go and they take uh, that amount of carbon dioxide and pay a certain amount of money to the farmer for that farmer to then go and work their soil to reduce the same amount of carbon dioxide. Right. But then they have the money that then they can invest however they need to invest. Right. Yeah, the name of the company is Indigo Agriculture. And it's Indigo in Agriculture. Yeah, based in Cambridge. Okay. So that's the idea of carbon trading. And as an aside, I mean, again, it's, it's exciting to be in the Boston area because some of the most interesting technology that's being developed is being done in the Boston area. So that What that, type of technologies would you say? Oh, I, it really, it covers the gamut, whether you're talking about uh, better biofuel production or this company, Indigo Agriculture. Um, there's companies focused on finding ways to reduce the carbon footprint of cement production. Again, it's it's a big issue, and I think one one very very exciting aspect of it locally is that Boston there's a lot there's a lot going on in Boston. That's good to know. Yeah. So just to get back to, I'm very interested in this carbon trading concept because you had said that it needs to be more affordable to trade carbon. Yeah, and so there's yeah so there's a lot of proposals around either carbon trading or carbon credits or emissions, and and one of the biggest questions is just how do you price it? Well, you know, what is the true cost of carbon dioxide per ton? So what right. is it today? Do you know? The numbers are kind of all over the place. You can, you know, they're anywhere from 50 to $150 a ton. Okay. Um, and just to give you some, you know, just some rough sense, you know, at, a, about, a, at about $100 a ton, I want to say, you know, if you think about a barrel of oil costing 60 bucks today, I think that would add on about $30 to the price of oil. I, I'll have to double check my math on that. But, you know, if you, if you use roughly like $100 a ton CO2 price, I, I think it's roughly about $30 a barrel of carbon dioxide cost associated with that $60 barrel of oil. How could we reduce the cost? Well, you know, the, the cost, so, the, you know, the... Uh, or the price. Yeah, the price, the price of those, those carbon credits is, is... So one of the challenges right now is that there is not a global carbon credit market. There's very disparate markets. There's European one, U.S. one. And even there, you know, there's, it's not very clear how meaningful any of them are in any kind of functional way yet. Ideally, you have a global liquid market that prices the cost of carbon at whatever the market clearing rate is. One of the things that capitalism is really good at is squeezing out inefficiencies. And so let's say you've got the price of carbon dioxide at $100 a ton, right? Mm-hmm. The question is, what's, what's the best way to get that ton of carbon dioxide out? Is it to reduce oil consumption? Is it to plant more trees? Is it to plant kelp in the sea? Is it increasing carbon content in soil? So I think we, we all have this perception that you know, if we're going to make a big dent in global warming, that oil consumption has to go to zero within five years or whatever. And that may not be the case. It may be that it's actually cheaper to continue using oil and finding other ways to get the carbon dioxide back into the ground. So that's the important thing is that if you have a liquid trading market that's valid, you know, globally, you're going to get the best outcomes and you're going to get a ton of entrepreneurs and a ton of money coming into the sector to find ways to do it cheaper and better. So just one question, though, that with oil. We can still use items that are going to release carbon dioxide in the environment. When you say we right. got to get to a zero level, right. so we just have to find a way to negate that. Right, okay. right. So the question is, is it is it going to be cheaper to have every single car in the United States switched over to electric vehicles, or is it going to be cheaper to continue to use oil for cars 
but we have this other way of getting carbon back into the ground, whether it's soil, soil sequestration or and any other number of techniques. And that's, again, I, I think the best solution is going to be to let the market to determine what, what is the best and most cost-effective way to get the carbon back to get to a net zero emissions number. And again, that can either come from reducing the emissions or it can come from increasing the amount you're putting back into the earth. Okay. But currently, worldwide, we're not, you're saying, necessarily treating carbon dioxide. No, it's a very... Uh, it's because a very, there's not even a set price. Yeah, there's not a set price. The markets are very disparate. Uh, pricing in Europe will be very different from other parts of the world. And so there's not, yeah, there's not really an agreed upon price for what it should be. And that's, again, part of this frustration is that a lot of the technological fixes can't really work until you have a set price for carbon. And we don't really have a set price for carbon yet. And how are we going to have a set price for carbon if we don't even agree that there's necessarily a need to focus on this? Right, right. That, that's And that's, that's, again, the frustration part of it is that there's not a lot of urgency yet. And I feel like every, every government, every country in the world has other short-term issues that they're focused on. And they don't necessarily have the time and attention to focus on something that's going to impact things 20 or 30 years from now. But, until you tell them, sorry, did I? Yeah, but, you know, but my, you know, again, I think a lot of it's going to come down to a question of, of public opinion. And, you know, if you continue to see signs that climate change is having a meaningful impact on our day-to-day life, that I think you'll see that shift happen. You know, it's probably going to be frustratingly slow. And then once it happens, it'll happen very, very fast. Do you think the United States should focus on this, on an opportunity to make a lot of money since we have a lot of open land? I, to me, it's a no-brainer for the United States to be driving leadership on this because, first of all, first of all, we have the technology and infrastructure to, to be the leaders of them, whether, whether that's Silicon Valley or here in the Boston area. But more broadly, if you look at uh, you know, the biggest wind generating, any, any guess what the biggest wind generating state in the country is? Power, wind turbines. Who do you think? Rhode which, Island. Which state? Rhode Island. Texas. Oh. <laughs> okay. Rhode Island's too small. <laughs> I just think Rhode Island cuz it's by the okay. Texas. Yeah, so you know, get hey, Texas. Texas is a big oil producing state. Why is it? Cuz it's so big? Um they have um they have very favorable regulatory background um in terms of uh providing interconnection to the electric grid. They've got great wind resources and uh they've got a lot of money locally to to build out projects. Um so it happened quickly and you know the crazy thing is in, in certain parts parts of the day in Texas, uh, wind, wind energy is actually negative cost because they have more wind energy than they know what to do with. Hmm. How, have, how come I've never heard about this? Am I just uh, not I reading know. the right articles? No, because it's, it's just very, uh, you know, no one wants, you know, we talk about regulatory challenges. Okay, so there's parts of the day where Texas is producing more wind than they, they know what to do with. But the problem is that their electrical grid is not interconnected properly to the rest of the rest of the country's grid right so they can't just send the power to us if we're short of power because the grid's not designed to do that right now and and there's but that no, could be there's done no, that could yeah, be changed yeah and there's absolutely no technological reason you can't do it yeah it's just a question of political and uh you know really political well i think even from a financial standpoint the money would would show up if the incentives were there so it's you know again when we think about you know ele- electricity generation the math works. You can use wind and solar and attach storage systems and power the entire country as long as the grid was interconnected. It's just, you know, a question of political will. Oh, my gosh. It almost makes me so angry that we're wasting time. Yeah, you know, and I share your frustration. Every year that we don't do anything meaningful, it, it makes the problem worse. Um, but at the same time, as I've spent more time on the issue, I think it's pretty clear to me that 
you know, it's easy to get frustrated at the political system about how slowly it's moving. But the reality is, is that we as Americans are not making this as big of an issue as it should be. OK, yeah, what can you, we do differently? At, you know, for example, if you look at, you know, kind of, you know, some of the some of the polls for, you know, key issues for the coming 2020 election, it tends to be some combination of health care, economy, um, national security issues, whether immigration or border border control or, you know, whatever else it may be. Climate change is not anywhere in that top five right now. And, and there's certainly for, uh, for a lot of people, it's their biggest issue. But for the majority of Americans, it's still not top, top, top of mind. What, you know, what I would say is that, you know, when we're talking about health care, economy, national security, climate change is going to impact all of those. And so as again, you know, the frustration is, is it's probably going to take some more natural disasters before people start to really understand just how big the risks are. But I'm also fairly confident that once they understand the risks involved, that we can move quickly politically. So what would be your your last thought to end this conversation? Yeah. You know, for me, um, this is me personally speaking. I, I, I really view climate change as our generation's version of slavery. And in the sense that, and I, and, and I can sound a little bit hyperbolic, but um, for me, there's a couple of big important things. So number one, it's an issue that affects all of us. It's an issue that particularly affects those who are least able to adapt to it. And I say that in the sense that, you know, if you have enough money and you live in the United States and you live in a vulnerable area, you can always pick up and move somewhere that's less vulnerable. But by and large, when we look at the populations most at risk, they don't have the resources to escape this, right? And so you are really talking about potentially billions of people in the next, call it 30 to 50 years, having to make very, very significant decisions about do they continue to live in a climate that's maybe in a country and region that's maybe not hospitable anymore? Or do you take a chance and, and kind of try to find somewhere else that's, that's, that's a better situation? And you know, I, I, I'm really, I strongly, strongly hope that we don't get to that point, that we are able to make some steps, both politically and economically, to, to start moving in the right direction and to mitigate the worst possible impacts of this. And I think we'll all feel a lot better once we're on that path. But it's a long road to go. But I, I would tell everyone listening that it's an eminently solvable problem. We just have to want to solve it. Mm -hmm. And my thoughts would be that it's usually such a taboo subject. We've all keep feeling that there's no hope about it. And so we just rather not even bring it up in order to not have a uncomfortable conversation with somebody else. But I actually think that we we should start being able to talk about it because we're not going to be able to change our way of thinking and all agree on something if we don't talk about it. Yeah. And I'll, you know, I'll share one one anecdote. You know, and I, I forget where I read this, but it was it was a it was a conversation that was relayed about it was somebody who's passionate about the issue of global warming. And they were at a holiday party with a lot of other, uh, you know, left-leaning people. And uh, everyone else at the party was talking about their vacation plans and where they were going and, you know, these exotic destinations. And, and the individual who wrote the story just asked all of them, like, don't you feel guilty at all about the contribution you're making to global warming? And all of them changed the conversation. You know, they just talked about, oh, here's this dessert. Here, why don't you have, have the cookie? have the cookie. Don't talk about this. You know, and that's within a left-leaning audience. And so that's, you know, again, we have this perception that it's this, you know, partisan issue. I don't, you know, I think that we're all in this together, you know, and we, on the left and the right, we, we, we all have to move faster on this. And we all have to accept that we have, you know, our activity is having an impact on, on the world. And, you know, once we accept that, it's a question of how do you deal with it? And hopefully, you know, we're able to deal with it in a way such that we can still take that flight to see grandma and it's, you don't have to feel guilty about it. Believe it's an issue, you may not believe it's an issue, but we're all contributing to it. And the solution is going to have to come from all of us too. So 
Well, thanks, Kapal. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>